fire has been around for a long time. It's been a consistent catalyst for change, shaping everything from the landscapes of the Western United States to our ability to cook meat. Now, more than ever, we are experiencing fire's power to consume, to destroy, yes, and hard as it may be to believe, to create. Fire has played an integral role in the natural landscapes of the world for as long as those landscapes have existed. Plants and animals alike rely on fire to renew certain ecosystems, and it's safe to say that our planet would be a far different place without its presence. Though it's a formidable site, and one of the most primal fears we have, the benefits of fire far outweigh the downsides, and when properly used, well-planned controlled burns can help prevent dangerous wildfires. So why are we still so scared of fire? Can we use fire without losing control? Or was Smokey Bear right all along? I'm Paul Mayer, and you're listening to Learn Baby, Burn. Fire has always been here. Our planet was born of fiery collisions and eruptions, and fire's role in the creation and development of terra firma is unmistakable. Earth's ability to create fire has taken many forms. Volcanic activity, lightning, even a chance spark thrown by a falling stone. The huge potential for the occurrence of fire meant that once our planet was populated by plants, and the easily ignitable refuse they create, the presence of fire was an inevitability. These early fires had a variety of different effects, and as they became more regular, certain ecosystems evolved to depend on fire for those effects. Fire brought with it renewal, removing dead or dying plants and turning them into fresh, nutrient-rich soil. Eventually, certain plants actually began to depend on fire for reproduction, requiring heat to release their seeds. This adaptation is called serotony, which is a blanket term for any situation in which seed release requires an environmental trigger. Serotony that requires fire can be found everywhere from Australia to the US, in plants ranging from the koala-friendly eucalyptus to pine trees. The fact that so many species adapted mechanisms that allow them to utilize the presence of fire points to its advantage. Seeds that were only released after a fire would be guaranteed fertile soil, and, depending on the hardiness of the other seeds in the area, would have far less competition. It's estimated that at least 530 species have evolved this kind of dependence on fire. Fire was quick to become a permanent feature of Earth's ecosystems, but it wasn't until primates began evolving the ability to modify their environment that it became an indispensable process. The benefits of fire were widespread, and early man, it seemed, was the perfect candidate to be recruited by Mother Nature to deliberately harness and utilize the power of fire. Humans have benefited from their relationships to many things during their tenure on Earth, with animals like dogs or sheep, things like stone and wood, even the moon and stars. But none has been as deeply transformative as our relationship with fire. Now, scholars agree that fire was most likely controlled by humans for the first time about a million years ago, 
but its use was simple, to provide warmth, light, and allow for cooking, essentially. As humans planted the seeds for civilization as we know it, they began spending much more time in one place, creating permanent settlements as they shifted away from their previously nomadic lifestyle. Settling in one spot meant that foraging was limited to the area surrounding your dwelling, which quickly led to the need for reliable, renewable food sources. This need led to the development of agriculture, which forced humans to take a more active role in managing the land on which they had settled. Early man's only teacher was the earth itself, so they mimicked the techniques they'd seen work in nature. They planted near available water sources, sometimes even in wetlands, following what they'd seen work for the edible plants they'd previously foraged. Instead of massive monocrops, they would create arrangements of assorted edible plants, smartly arranged to allow plants to form symbiotic, advantageous relationships. Just as we were able to understand the positive impacts of permacultural practices, we quickly became attuned to the way that natural processes affected our ability to harvest food. Events like rainstorms and droughts had very direct impacts on food sources, but there was something more mysterious about fire. It couldn't have been immediately clear what fire's impact was, as I'm sure many early humans that saw fire immediately ran in the opposite direction, never to return to the site of the burn. Eventually, however, man realized that they could safely watch fire, and after the fire had passed, examine the site of the burn to see what had happened. Aside from providing awesome visual displays, and leaving an intimidating scene of destruction, Early man soon saw that fire provided some immediate benefits in the form of its ability to reduce cover and open up previously inaccessible areas. Burns create tons of foraging opportunities for all kinds of animals, which, man realized, made recently burned areas, forgive the pun, hot spots for hunting. Hunting and foraging aside, man slowly came to realize that burning's main benefit was its long-term ability to regenerate the land. Burning decreases nutrient pooling, which in turn increases the availability of key nutrients in the soil, such as nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium mainly, while also converting dead plant tissue into these nutrients. More nutrient-rich soil means more well-nourished plants, which means better harvesting and foraging for animals of all sorts. Early man quickly learned that fire meant fertile soil, and for thousands of years, fire was used as a way to regenerate the land and improve their access to reliable food sources. The tradition of restorative, intentional burning can be found across the globe, but it's most well-documented in the native inhabitants of the Americas, specifically of North America. For the Native Americans, fire was a part of life, a force to be respected as well as a tool to be worked with. Native Americans recognized early on that fire wasn't something to be feared, but rather a complex organism to be understood and utilized. Native Americans used fire to cook, and for light and warmth, yes, but they had many inventive and intelligent applications for fire outside of its core use as, essentially, a campfire. They would deliberately set fire to certain habitats, using the resulting blaze to corral animals like deer and elk out of dense, inaccessible areas into open fields or gorges, a practice known as a fire drive. They also used fire to aid in the gathering of grasshoppers, driving them out of fields and towards groups of nearby hunters, waiting with open nets to catch the fleeing insects. 
Fire was also important in the production of basketry materials, tobacco cultivation, you name it. They burned before the harvest, after the harvest, and in the case of some plants like tarweed, even during the harvest, drying out the tarweed seed pods to make them brittle and easier to gather. Their use of fire was so prolific that some researchers have described certain native tribes as being a part of a pyroculture. Fire was a huge part of their way of life, and it's hard to argue that it did anything but improve their lives. Native American use of fire continued for thousands of years, leaving behind a record of a culture that was as vibrant and resourceful as it was inventive. Native Americans, and all indigenous animistic peoples, benefited greatly from their close connection to the land on which they resided. It's safe to say that the land too benefited from their intelligent, respectful use of its resources, indicating a beautiful symbiosis that truly reflects the best of what can happen when we act according to the needs of our environment. Unfortunately, this symbiotic beneficial relationship to fire wasn't set to last forever, due to one potent, unforeseen force. Colonialism. The colonists that came to what is now the United States had a variety of different reasons for leaving their homes. Some were escaping religious persecution. Others were simply adventurous and wondered what life might be like in the New World. And there were some that thought that America was the perfect place to go make their fortune. Whatever their motivation for moving across the ocean, the colonists weren't going to America for a vacation. They were settlers looking to establish new towns and cities in a land of untapped opportunity. In the eyes of the colonists, this opportunity took the form of monetary potential, and finding themselves in a land filled with, as they viewed them, unexploited resources, their path to wealth was obvious. Though early settlers, accepting the aid of the Native Americans they encountered, were probably less interested in making money and more interested in survival, as the population of the colonies grew, so too did the aspirations of those residing there. By 1815, the population of the newly independent United States had grown to over 23 million people, and they brought with them a wave of rapid expansion. Settlements became towns, which became cities, and as they grew, so too did their demand for resources. Wood was one of the most abundant materials the settlers found when they landed here and they weren't at all hesitant to begin taking advantage of the plentiful, almost untouched forests of the New World. The Native American views of nature were lost on the settlers, who viewed all resources, including the forests, as infinite and inexhaustible. They clear-cut for miles, using the wood for shelter, warmth, and, perhaps most notably, as a material to build millions of miles of fence the domestication of animals wasn't a widespread feature in the Americas until the settlers came, and domesticating animals required enclosures for said animals. Early fences were rather inefficient, and required some 8,000 hand-split rails for a 40-acre enclosure. Let's assume it took 400 trees to make those 8,000 rails, and that for a settlement of a few hundred people there would be some 4,000 acres of fenced-in land. We're looking at 40,000 trees, just for a small settlement, just for fences! Although settlers attempted to restore the land they had ravaged, 
they did so with little to no understanding of what they were doing. They tried using fire to reclaim many of the forests they had decimated, to be used as farmland, but since they had clear-cut so much land and left behind so much refuse, the fires they started burned ferociously and out of control. These man-made fires, in addition to the naturally occurring fires that littered much of the United States, left quite a legacy of destruction. It's estimated that in the years between 1870 and 1920, thousands of people died in the forest fires that were burning 20 to 50 million acres a year, which made people understandably fearful. When Yellowstone became America's first national park in 1872, the fear of fire was slowly moving to the top of the cultural consciousness. When the army was sent to Yellowstone as Guardians of the Park in 1886, they found numerous fires burning, and quickly decided to make controlling the blazes their top priority. As new parks continued to pop up, army guards were sent there, and similarly put fire suppression at the top of their to-do list, a practice that showed no signs of slowing in 1916, when the National Park Service was established to relieve the army of its park-carrying duties. With the support of the National Park Service, fire suppression became the fire policy, and until the 1970s, fire was prevented on all federally managed land. Even the most fire-dependent of ecosystems were managed so as to entirely remove the presence of fire. To those implementing the removal of fire, it made sense. Less fire meant, well, less fire, right? Only now do we understand the short-sightedness of this policy. Removing fire in fire-dependent environments only made them more prone to future, more unstoppable fires, while weakening those ecosystems and negatively impacting wildlife. The negative effects of fire suppression were finally noticed in 1962 when the Secretary of the Interior, Stuart Udall, asked a committee to look into the overpopulation of elk in Yellowstone. The committee's research resulted in what is today known as the Leopold Report, a landmark study that marked the first time an outside group was asked to evaluate wildlife programs within the National Park Service. The report signaled an unprecedented level of awareness of the problems with American environmental policy. Not only did it condemn recreational hunting, it was also one of the first times a national park was viewed as an ecosystem, an interconnected web of life, each part dependent on each other part. Alongside other great recommendations, like ensuring the park's roads be as sparse and unobtrusive as possible, it also directly recommended prescribed fire as a beneficial process, stating that of the various land management tactics available, quote, the controlled use of fire is the most natural and much the cheapest and easiest to apply." Unquote. It wasn't perfect, but the Leopold Report was a big step towards the recognition that fire was not only an effective form of land management, but a necessary ecological process. After the report was released, the National Park Service pivoted to allow wildfires to burn, so long as they could be contained in units and had specific management goals. By 1975, most Forest Service parks had policies allowing fires to be allowed to burn for ecological purposes, a practice that continued uninterrupted until 1989, when a series of escaped fires prompted a major fire policy review. 
The review aimed to create more stringent guidelines for the implementation and control of wildfires that were left to burn, in addition to intentionally set fires. Although another escaped fire in 2000 precipitated similar policy changes, since around 1975, we've been playing catch-up, reigniting areas that haven't seen fire since before World War II. There's still a lot of back and forth with regards to the attitude towards the utilization of fire for ecological objectives. There's no question that prescribed fire has become more frequent in recent years. According to the National Interagency Fire Center, 2017 yielded 6,429,229 acres of prescribed burning, over seven times the amount seen in 1999 and the most in any year on record. Burning practices are becoming more well-regulated, efficient, and effective. The creation of prescribed fire councils has given the public direct access to practitioners and researchers that can accurately explain prescribed fire to them, and give them the resources to practice burning themselves. However, there is a suite of political, legal, and operational challenges that make it difficult to get prescribed fire on the ground. Laws like the Clean Air Act, for example, make burning tricky, especially when political pressure to reduce emissions causes politicians to limit land managers' underfunded fire use instead of emissions from lobbyist-rich big industry. Public perception of burning, though steadily improving, still remains tepid. Unsuccessful burns are far more likely to be focused on by the public, and as climate change creates drier, hotter environments, safety and control are only going to become bigger challenges. Inadequate funding is both a result of and a contributor to public unease regarding fire. Without the proper funding to share the benefits of burning, the public remains in the dark. And so long as the public is convinced that burning is scary and dangerous, funding remains hard to find. Luckily, it's easier than ever to share the positive effects of burning. Social media lets us circulate all parts of the process, and makes people aware of the very real positive effects prescribed burning can have. There's never been more research on prescribed fire, more impetus to investigate and practice it. We're living in an era of great uncertainty, yes, but we also live at the peak of decades of effort by those that came before us. Ours is a great task to stand on the shoulders of the scientists and practitioners that came before us and continue onwards in the face of great opposition. And make no mistake, the opposition is great. Our president has been very clear that he does not believe in climate change, and his efforts to gut the agencies that work to protect the environment have been effective, to say the least. But there's hope. Together, we can burn this country to a better place. Together, we can fill a prescription that has existed in this country since the very beginning. A prescription for fire. Learn Baby Burn is written and produced by me, Paul Mayer. It's sponsored by the Michigan Prescribed Fire Council. You can check out more about us at firecouncil.org. All the music on the show, except for that John Philip Sousa march, is written by me, Paul Mayer. We hope you enjoy this episode of Burn Baby Learn, and please stay tuned for more.